get started here. Um, Father, we thank you that you have given us your word. We thank you that you're a God who has not stood far away from us or who has been silent, but one who has spoken through your prophets and your apostles in order to reveal yourself to us. And we thank you most of all that you've spoken to us through the Lord Jesus, uh, the one who is greater than the prophets, who doesn't have to say, thus saith the Lord, but simply speaks because he is the Lord the one who's greater than the angels and brings us a better message than than they delivered. And help us today to obey the book of Hebrews by paying the closest amount of attention possible to what we hear, lest we drift away from it. Um, Help us to remember that since we have a greater prophet and a greater message, that we therefore have a greater responsibility to listen and obey. And give us hearts that are able and willing to do that. For we ask and pray in Jesus' name. Amen. All right. Book of Hebrews gives what type of arguments over and over again? Good to better. Good to better. We've looked at two of them so far. Jesus is better than the? Prophets. prophets. And then he's better than the? Angels. Um, what did the angels apparently, what message did they apparently deliver? The law. The law. And um, was the law reliable? Hebrews 2 says it was reliable. The things that the law said would happen, they happened. And so Hebrews um, told us that since Christ is so much better than the prophets and so much better than the angels, since he's better than the law and prophets, then we should pay even closer attention to him. Um, Hebrews 3 then began to compare him to Moses. Moses was a servant, but Christ was a, is a, is a son. Yes. There's a big bug over there on the baseboard. Oh, yeah, there is. I'm not really sure what it is. Where? Oh, that's a massive spider. That's what I feel like. Oh, that's not going to work. Oh, yeah, it is. Yeah. Oh, Lordy. Let's get Australian up in here. Yeah, it came back with the woods it's dead ah, yeah uh, all right i saw one about that big um like two weeks ago two weeks ago i walked in and it was right there oh it is. I, uh, well no i didn't see it until i was in i was about to go back out to my car so i saw it and then I like started trying to throw things at it because I was scared. So like I had my jacket and I just like threw my jacket and then I threw both of my shoes and then several pieces of tissue. And apparently one student that will remain unnamed drove past while all of that was happening. And so and so this student later in the day was like, hey, so uh, and I was like, yeah, there's a big spider. So. I finally just like put my hand in my shoe and just smacked the crap out of it. And I killed it and then I put the shoe back on and I jumped on its dead body. So it's It did twitch. But uh yeah, it twitched a little bit. So one time I, I was working at Brian and um, 
we were moving a portion of stuff that like had never been moved before. And so um, we, we moved this thing and this massive spider came out. And so me and my friend, like we were chasing it around and we both stomped on it and it was like all crickled. Like, like, I mean, like it was, we heard it crunch, both of us under our feet. And so we keep moving things and then we look over and the spider's gone and we see it crawling up the wall. We both, we both, like I probably stepped on that thing like five times. He probably did the same. And like both of us heard it crunch. Like there were spider, there were a little bit of spider guts on the floor and like, like where it had been. And it got back up and was like, he was an invincible spider. Um, we finally killed it. And then um, I also used to have to do a lot of the spraying at Brian. And um, like outside there would be like spider webs where they had like their babies and stuff. And like um, I would be spraying and then I would have to take um, like a broom and knock those down. And so like there were multiple times where like apparently I stepped on a pregnant spider and like oh, a bunch of little spiders came out. Um, and then um, I, I, I think I've told you guys about this before, but um, I was spraying in one of the rooms during the summer one time. And um, I, I knew that one of the rooms um, was where my friend Sarah had stayed that previous year. And so um, Sarah um, had like had us over for, for some games and stuff during open dorm. And so I, I go into Sarah's room and like the entire floor is covered in spiders. Oh. And so I'm just like spraying things and I'm seeing them die and I feel very powerful. Um, <laughs> and then um, I get over to her window and there's this massive spider there. And I'm like, huh, I don't like that. So I just like start spraying it with poison in the face <laughs> for like 30 seconds. And this thing drops onto the floor. Well, I spray it initially and it drops onto the floor and I'm like, it's dead. But then it starts crawling at me. So I spray it in the face for like a full 30 seconds with poison and it's taking its front two legs and going like this at the poison and I was like oh no and then it started sprinting through the poison at my foot and I was like you know what this is a minimum wage job this isn't worth it so I ran and I got out of there and so I um that afternoon I uh I'm, I'm calling people I call her First of all, as soon as I get out of the room, I call her and she answers and is like, hey. And I was like, what is wrong with you? And she's like, what are you talking about? I was like, I just went into your dorm room and it is covered in spiders. She used to sleep with the window open. Oh. I don't know. But there were just spiders everywhere. And then um, I called my, I called, I couldn't get in touch with my mom. And I couldn't get in touch with Mackenzie. Neither of them answered. And so I, um, I called my grandma. Just I wanted to complain about this. So I called my grandma, and I tell her this story. And she's just like she's not laughing. She's silent. And then finally I finish, and there's like this awkward pause where I feel very judged. You know that those types of pauses. And, and then all of a sudden she um, she says, "Why didn't you take your shoe off and beat it?" And I said. That thing just ran face first through a 30 second long stream of poison. Thought it would catch my shoe. Thought it would start beating me with it. And so um, I, I did, I finally got brave enough the next day. I, I didn't go back that day, but I, I got brave enough the next day to go back because I needed to sweep the spiders up. Oh, oh. And that really big one was upside down 
at the threshold of the door. <laughs> it made it all the way across the room, and then finally the poison got to it, and it died. But um, there was also a boiler room one time where um, it didn't have a doorknob on it, so the the door had a hole where the doorknob should have gone and you had to put your finger in and open it. And I knew oh, no. that that was sketchy because I knew that this boiler room, like we wound up having to put a spider bomb in there and like, like kill them that way. But um, I, um, I, I almost opened it and then I thought I'm not going to do that. So I put the nozzle of the poison in the hole and I just like, like kind of like turned it where it went like every direction, like made a full circle with it. And I sprayed and then I pulled it out, and there were probably like 30 spiders that came out oh. that were living in the door. No. So they finally, they finally like realized like, like that, that, that dorm will never, I think, have a living spider in it again after the amount of stuff that they used on it that summer. Like, like they killed all of them. All of them were dead. Like, there was, like, a spider nuke that, yeah. Um, like, they used so much poison in that dorm room that summer that, like, we were not allowed to go in there for, like, a week. Oh, wow. And then we did, and all the spiders were dead, and it was awesome. And whatever that thing is, I think we should make more of them. And we should use them in every bu- oh. Um. <laughs> I knew it. It's a ghost is haunting you. Go see an exorcist. So, anyways, Hebrews. They're not spiders. I can't remember uh, what, what I said at the beginning of class before the spider tangent. The two good to better arguments. Yeah, I'm glad that it's dead. Um, so, uh, Jesus is better than prophets. He's better than angels. And then it made the comparison between him and Moses. Moses was faithful in all God's house as a servant. But Jesus isn't a servant. He's a, he's a son. So he's superior to Moses. It also talks about how... Um, Moses was faithful to testify to the things that were to be spoken later. The reason that Moses is good, he's useful and we should pay attention to him, is because his message points forward to the things that would be spoken later in and through Christ. Um, Moses is a shadow of the good things that were to later come. And so he's good, but Jesus is better. So again, the point of this book is it's written to people tempted to fall back into Judaism uh, you shouldn't do that, according to the author of Hebrews, because uh, you have the better thing, that, uh, which, is, which is Christ and the message he brings. Now, in chapter 3, we get into our second warning passage. And as we go through Hebrews, we don't have time to tackle all of the warning passages, but we, will. we have looked at the one in chapter 2, which was very brief. It was the first four verses of chapter 2. And now we're going to look at a longer one, which uh, is the majority of chapter 3 and the majority of chapter 4 together. So um, this is a very interesting text. I'm going to start reading it and then we'll, we'll pause occasionally. Um, verse 7 of chapter 3 is where we start getting into our warning text. And it says, therefore, as the Holy Spirit says. And then it quotes from Psalm 95. Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion on the day of testing in the wilderness, where your fathers put me to the test and saw my works for 40 years. 
Therefore, I was provoked with that generation and said, they always go astray in their heart. They have not known my ways. As I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest. So the author of Hebrews has just made a comparison between Jesus and Moses. And then he quotes Psalm 95, which is about the wilderness, the, the generation in the, in the wilderness. All right. So what did the people in the wilderness do? Did they listen to God's message through Moses? Did they listen to the law that had been proclaimed by angels? No. They rejected the word of God. And Psalm 95 says, it's written well after the wilderness generation uh, died. And Psalm 95 says, you don't want to be like them. They had Moses, they had the law, but they didn't hear God's voice. They plugged their ears to it. And Psalm 95 says, today, if you hear his voice, don't act the same way. Don't reject the message. What was the punishment, according to verse 11, that the wilderness generation experienced? They shall not enter my rest. What does God's rest mean for the wilderness generation? For the wilderness generation? Canaan. Canaan. Promised land. Right? Into your wilderness wandering, have peace and security in the land of promise. So, basically, um, what, the, what the author of Hebrews does is um, uh, the we'll have the wilderness generation up here. And we'll have the church down here. Who is the main preacher that the wilderness generation had? Moses. Moses. And what did he preach to them? The law. Moses. And he preached the law. And did they respond to God's voice? They did not listen. So... They were barred from entering into God's what? Rest. Yeah, they did not receive rest in, uh, we could say, in God's country. That's what Canaan is considered um, in the Old Testament. They don't receive rest in God's country. And the message of Hebrews 3 and of Psalm 95 is don't be like them. If you hear his voice, then you need to listen. Verse 12, the author of Hebrews says, Take care, brothers, lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart leading you to fall away from the living God. What did the wilderness generation apparently have? Unbelieving heart, and, and what else does it call their hearts? Evil. They had evil, unbelieving hearts. Why do they not listen to God's voice? Why do they sin? They have evil, unbelieving hearts. And the author of Hebrews says, take care lest you have one too. Verse 13, instead, exhort one another every day, as long as it's called today, that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. For we have come to share in Christ, if indeed we hold our original confidence firm to the end. As it is said today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion. For who are those who heard and yet rebelled? 
Was it not all those who left Egypt led by Moses? And with whom was he provoked for forty years? Was it not with those who sinned, whose bodies fell in the wilderness? And to whom did he swear that they would not enter his rest, but to those who were disobedient? So we see that they were unable to enter because of unbelief. Author Hebrews makes an interesting case here. Why do they sin? What is the root cause of sin? Unbelief. Unbelief. Every sin, according to the author of Hebrews, is rooted in unbelief. Even for believers. I believe God. I believe that Jesus has saved me from my sins. I put my faith in the gospel. But then something happens, a life circumstance comes up where I know what God commands me to do, but I do the opposite. Well, in that moment, I'm exercising unbelief. Do I believe that God is good? Do I believe that he loves me? Do I believe that he has my best in mind? Do I believe that he's really wise? Well, if I believed that he was good, that he loved me, that he had my best in mind, and that he was wise, I would do what he says. Sin is a practical denial of faith. Whenever we sin, it's rooted in unbelief. The way to fix sin problems is to come to the point where we have deeper trust in God. A deeper understanding of his goodness, a deeper understanding that he loves us and has our best in mind, a deeper understanding and a deeper trust in his wisdom. The wilderness generation, did the wilderness generation know God existed, by the way? Yeah, they saw him, you know, with their eyes. They saw the pillar of fire and the pillar of cloud. They knew he existed, but did they believe? No. And therefore they sinned and were unable to enter into his rest. In chapter 4, verse 1, the author of Hebrews says, Therefore, while the promise of entering his rest still stands, let us fear, lest any of you should seem to have felt to reach it. For good news came... Good news. What word would that actually be in Greek? Gospel. Gospel. Gospel came to us just as to them, but the message they heard did not benefit them because they were not united by faith with those who listened. For we who have believed enter that rest, as he has said, as I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest, although his works were finished from the foundation of the world. For he's spoken somewhere of the seventh day in this way, God rested on the seventh day from all his works. And again, in this passage, he said, they shall not enter my rest. Let's pause right there for a second and, and make parallels here. The wilderness generation had Moses in the law. What do we have? Yeah, we have Jesus, and what is the message that Jesus preaches called? The gospel. Wilderness generation did not listen. All right, they had evil, unbelieving hearts. And the point that Hebrews is trying to get to us is in the first warning passage, um, it said we need to pay the closest amount of attention possible. All right. He, uh, Psalm 95 says, Today, if you hear his voice, don't harden your heart. They didn't listen. We need to listen. It also says that we need to exhort one another. What does it mean to exhort each other? This is what it says in chapter 3, verses uh, around verse 12. What does it mean to exhort one another? 
text there's something like exhort each other and build each other up right after it. So I would assume they're synonymous or similar at least. Yeah, an exhortation is um, kind of an encouragement to do something. Like if I exhort you to do something, I'm trying to persuade you to do it. I'm trying to encourage you to do it, right? And so what the author of Hebrews is saying is you, they didn't listen. You need to listen. Don't be like them. You need to exhort each other as well. You need to encourage one another to listen to the words of God. And you even need to speak those words to each other and try to persuade each other to listen to and obey them. They had evil, unbelieving hearts, and this passage calls us not to harden our hearts. Isn't that interesting, by the way? Who is the person who most famously hardened his heart in Scripture? Pharaoh. And then Psalm 95 steps in and says that the wilderness generation also hardened their hearts. Today, if you hear his voice, don't be like those people who hardened their hearts. Um, according to Psalm 95, who does the wilderness generation wind up looking like? They're sons of Pharaoh. Um, what nation do they wind up looking like? And they look like the Egyptians. And what does God always send on the Egyptians in the Exodus? Plagues. And what does he constantly send on the wilderness generation in Numbers? Ten times he sends plagues on them. How many, how many plagues does he send on Egypt? Ten. How many does he send on Israel in the wilderness? Ten. His people are no better than the Egyptians. They've fallen back into slavery in the wilderness, which is what chapter 2 was encouraging us not to do. So don't harden your hearts. And then there's the promise. All right? If you, if you listen, if you don't harden your heart, there's a promise that's attached to this. You can enter God's what? rest except the rest that is being offered to you and to me um, the rest that was offered in, in Canaan was good wasn't it but the rest that's offered to you and me is what better, better. Um, the rest that's being offered to us in the first several verses of chapter 4 is like really really good It says in verse 3, We who have believed enter that rest. As he has said, as I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest. Although God's works were finished from the foundation of the world. For he somewhere spoken of the seventh day in this way. God rested on the seventh day from all his works. And again in this passage he said, They shall not enter my rest. Since therefore it remains for some to enter it. And those who formerly received the good news failed to enter because of disobedience. Again, he appoints a certain day today, saying through David so long afterward in the words already cited, today, if you hear his voice, don't harden your hearts. For if Joshua had given them rest, God would not have spoken of another day later on. So then there remains a Sabbath rest for the people of God. For whoever has entered God's rest has also rested from his works as God did from his. 
who lets them go into God's country? Who finally gives them rest in the promised land? Joshua. Um, what is Joshua's real name? Jesus. So there was a Joshua that gave them rest in Canaan. And there's a Jesus who's offering us a rest now. Um, but the rest that is being offered here is, is way better. In fact, it's so much better that the author of Hebrews says, yeah, I mean, Joshua kind of gave them a rest, but not really. What is the rest that God is offering through the gospel? Um, what is it being compared to in this text? What, what, is, what is the author of Hebrews bringing up? He does it two different times in the text that I just read. What rest is he, is he alluding to? Look at verse 4, and then look at verse 9. God's rest on the seventh day. Now, to understand what the author of Hebrews is doing here, um, we need to look back at Genesis for a minute. Um, Genesis chapter 1, God creates the heavens and the earth. And according to Genesis 1, yeah, you probably don't want to, though. All right. Um, according to Genesis 1, how many days does God create in? Yeah, so if you really need to, you can. It's okay, it's okay. He, he creates in six days, all right? Every day follows a pattern. God does something, and then he sees that it is what? Good. Good. And then there is something and something. Evening and morning. There is evening and morning, the whatever day. That happens through the first six days of creation. Then we get to day seven, and this is what we read. Thus the heavens and earth were finished, and all the host of them. And on the seventh day, God finished his work that he had done, and he rested on the seventh day from all his work that he had done. So God blessed the seventh day and made it holy, because on it God rested from all his work that he had done in creation. What's weird about that text? There is no evening and there is no morning. What does that imply about the seventh day? Yeah. That's exactly how Hebrews is reading it. Verse 3, we who have believed enter that rest, although God's works were finished from the foundation of the world. For he's somewhere spoken of the seventh day in this way. God rested on the seventh day from all of his works. According to those verses, God's work has been finished from the what? Creation. Yeah, from the foundation of the world. He created for the six days, and then his rest has continued from the foundation of the world. Um, so God has always been in a state... Of what? Rest. Of rest. Sabbath rest. Now, resting is, we always think of it as being lazy and chillaxing or whatever. Um, resting in the Old Testament has to do with more than that. A king rests on his throne, and then what does he do? He rules. He rules. Right? 
Um, so we have to think about rest in Genesis 2 as more than just like, ah, I'm done, right? Um, Israel, whenever they conquer Canaan, it says that they have rest in the land from warfare. That means that they are the ones who are in control. They're ruling, right? And so there is a, a part of this that is, you know, resting, relaxing from your labors, taking a break, but it is more than that as well. But the point of this text is that God has been in a state of Sabbath rest since the beginning of the world. And humanity now has an opportunity to enter into that rest through faith in the gospel. So um, the promise is you can enter into God's rest, but this is so much better than the rest that was offered through Joshua. It's the very Sabbath rest that God enjoys. It's the state of being that, that, that God is in. How would you define God and, and, and his state of being? Um, God is the source of all that is good and joyful. God is the source of all happiness, all blessing. This is the state that Jesus offers you entry into. Now, let me make my, um, my one controversial point of the day. Yay. How many days does God create in? Six. And then the seventh day, we have the creation week, right? Six days of creation, seventh day, except that seventh day does what? Doesn't end. Doesn't end. And it's a reference to this status that God is kind of eternally in, the status of rest that he enjoys and the status of eternal rest that you now have the opportunity to enter into. You could think of all of eternity as the Sabbath rest of God. That's what it means to have eternal life. You enter into God's Sabbath, joyous, peaceful rest. Okay. Um, if the author of Hebrews, if we're reading him correctly, and if we are supposed to see in Genesis chapter 2 that the seventh day has no evening and morning and it goes on forever and ever, world without end, um, what does that do to our interpretation of Genesis 1? Makes you wonder how long the days were. They have evening and morning, right? Well, yeah, but like, if the seventh day has no evening and morning, then how do we differentiate the time between the days? Okay. I think that's a fair point. Um, what else? Yeah, there's this really, yeah, yeah, that's a really good point. It, it doesn't have evening and morning, so like what is the beginning of it look like? Day six had evening and morning, but there's not evening and morning with day seven. So what is the beginning of it look like? You know, there's this really interesting text in Zechariah that talks about the, um, the return of Christ in the new heavens and new earth. And it says, um, 
it says on that day, talking about the, the day when Christ returns, he raises the dead, he ushers in the new creation. It says on that day, there shall be no light, cold or frost, and there shall be a unique day, which is known to the Lord, neither day nor night, but at evening time, there shall be light. What does that sound like? Yeah, it sounds like this eternal seventh day, right? And this is the, the, the day that Christ ushers in whenever he ushers in the day of the Lord and he makes all things new. Um, yeah, I think that what this does personally um, is the seventh day. Should we understand the seventh day as a 24-hour period? I don't think so. I think that we're supposed to understand that the seventh day is a state of being that God enjoys. I think that we're supposed to understand it as having spiritual significance. It's pointing us to eternity and what eternal life looks like. And as I read that and then I go back to Genesis 1, it makes me wonder a little bit um, whether those first six days should be interpreted how. Yeah, are are they referring to, you know, these 24-hour periods that that we consider days? Which, by the way, when is uh, this, how do you determine a day? How do you determine a day? Huh? Yeah, sun, sun and moon. Those are the great governors. When are they created? Fourth day. Here's what I think Genesis 1 is doing. And I know that people disagree with this sometimes, and I know that this is sometimes a little bit controversial, so I'm not going to like put this on a test, and I'm not going to tell you that I'm 100% sure on this, but this is kind of what I think Genesis 1 is doing personally, um, is um, creation is broken up this way. You've got the first three days, and then you've got the second three days. And the first three days, um, what is created on day one? Uh, that's the prologue. Yeah, um, day one is uh, God separates the light and the darkness, so he makes um, day and night. What does he make on day four? Yeah, the sun, moon, and stars. So you could say that he, um, the whole thing is um, um, basically like, like he makes a sphere day and night. And then what does he do? He fills it, right? Sun for the day, moon and stars for the night. And then uh, second day, he separates the water um, the water from the water, he makes an expanse appear. Um, so this is really concerned with um, like sky, uh, sort of sky and sea stuff. All right. What does he make on day five? Sea creatures and falling creatures. Yeah, fifth day he, he makes um, sea creatures and he makes, um, he makes birds. So this is your sea and sky day. And then what does he do on day five? So this is day one and day four. Uh, day two and day five, he makes 
um, fish and birds. And then on this day, he makes the dry land. And what is the really important thing that gets created on day six? Well, he makes the animals. But what else does he make on day six? Human. Humans. So you have, if you read Genesis 1 this way, God creates different spheres. And then he goes through and he fills the spheres with whatever governs them. All right. Um, sun and moon and stars are called signs for, and, and governors of the day and night. Uh, humanity, of course, is supposed to have dominion over it all. And so it follows this really unique pattern. Now, what's really interesting about this is what does he actually call human beings in, uh, on day six? Uh, let us make something, let us make man in our image and likeness. Where, does, where do the terms image and likeness usually show up in the Bible? If you make an image, is it usually a good thing? No. No, it's usually considered a idol. idol. So, and you usually put idols in what places? Temples. Temples. Um, so think about it like this really quickly. Um, how many spheres of creation are there? Three. If you think about it, um, temple. How many spheres in the temple? What are they? Outer court. You could consider the heavens. Right? Heavens is where day and night stuff happens. It's the sky that's really far away from you. This is kind of your outer court. And then there's... Um, you have kind of your, um, your holy place, your inner court. All right? And then the most holy place, remember, the Holy of Holies. And where would a image usually be placed? In a temple? Where in the temple? That's usually where you would put your image. And images are um, representatives of the God if you hurt one of the images, then the God will, you know, supposedly get vengeance on you. It's a representative of the God. Uh, it carries something of the authority of the God, which is why you don't mistreat it. And um, Israel's not supposed to make any graven images according to the second commandment because guess what? They are. They are the image. They're, at least they're supposed to live that way. Um, and then on the seventh day, God, what verb does he do? rests and that word the glory of God does what on the temple rests because inside of the holy of holies you have the ark of the covenant which is called the what of God the throne or the footstool of God and whenever God's glory rests on the temple you're supposed to imagine that his throne is above the holy of holies and, or is above the, the, the Ark of the Covenant, and his feet are resting on it as his footstool, and that is where God rests. That is where his glory dwells. That is the throne from which he, what does resting kind of mean? He rules. So, Genesis chapter 1, I think, you know, could it, could it be um, literal 24-hour periods? Sure, I, sure, it could be. Um, I think it's really weird. 
if that is the case, that the seventh day does not have an evening and morning. I also think it's really weird that it says in verse 4 of chapter 2, these are the generations of the heavens and the earth when they were created in the day. Singular or plural? Singular. In the day that the Lord made the heavens and earth. Um, I, I, think, I think that if you take them as literal 24-hour periods, there's nothing wrong with that, but you have to be able to explain why the seventh day doesn't have an evening and morning and why Genesis 2-4 all of a sudden is not talking about six days, it's talking about one day. Um, what I do think, beyond a shadow of a doubt, Genesis 1 is doing, is it's saying that all of creation is God's what? Temple. Temple. Which means that God should be honored and worshipped Where? everywhere and that he is ruling over everything right i think that's really the point of genesis 1 and that hebrews 3 and 4 then is stepping in and saying god has an eternal reign over all of creation he has this eternal state of being that's defined by rest a joyful rest and a joyful rule And if you believe the gospel, you have entered that rest, according to the beginning of Hebrews 4. And if you believe the gospel, you will enter that rest. Because Jesus is a greater Joshua. Joshua can lead them into God's country here on earth, the promised land that is below. But Jesus is preparing for you an eternal promised land above. A heavenly country whose founder and ruler and architect is God himself. That's what we'll read in Hebrews chapter 11. And so you have a greater prophet. He preaches a greater message. He promises a greater rest. And you have the responsibility to give him even greater attention. Don't be like the wilderness generation that hardened their hearts and were deceived by sin but be those that enter into God's rest through perseverance and patience. I think that's what Hebrews 3 and 4 is getting at there. So, any questions? Is this helpful? I think it is. Um, Don't argue with each other or with people about exact interpretation of Genesis 1, because um, um, I think it's fine to have discussions along these lines, but I don't think it's good to be militant and angry about it. Um, I think that people who take a 24-hour period for each day have very good reasons for doing so. I have highlighted that there's kind of two difficulties with that in Genesis 2 that you've got to be able to account for. But I think that some people have very good ways of accounting for those. I respect the position that takes it as 24-hour periods. I also think there's good reasons not to. So this is something that we want. Do we want to hold it like this or do we want to hold it like this? I think with a little bit more of an open hand. But the point of Genesis 1 that everyone can agree on is God made everything. God rules everything uh, everywhere, all the time, everywhere, everything, everywhere, all at once. Aha, that's a movie. Um, And uh, we want to enter into that rest by faith. So you guys can head on out.